Good morning, guys. Good to be here with you. I'm Pastor Chris. I'm the creative arts pastor here at Riverbend. As you saw, I was playing the djembe this morning. I'm normally up here hiding behind an instrument and singing music, but you guys get the pleasure of hearing my second sermon this morning. My last one was two years ago on the same weekend. So yeah, two years in the making. So it's been quite a bit of planning in the process, but um, I ask that you guys bow your heads with me in prayer as we begin our morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning. Um, and Lord, as I look out uh, and I see uh, just the faces of people that I know and love, I'm just so thankful, Lord, for just the opportunity to be able to share. And Lord, just the work that you've done in this place and with these people's lives. It's just, it's an honor to be able to share, Lord. So Lord, I just pray for your spirit this morning. I pray for you to speak through me. And Lord, I just pray for, for you to be made much of this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Okay. All right, we're starting, uh, we're continuing Love Has Won. And uh, we started this series back in Easter. And we looked at John 13 through 17, which, as Rich McDaniel put it, is the commencement speech of Christ, his last words for his disciples before his crucifixion, before his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And this has been a great series because it just gives us Christ's heart through his last words to his disciples, his heart for the Father, his heart for his disciples, and his heart for a broken world that doesn't yet know him. And we're shifting this week from his last words, his preparation. We saw in John 17, his prayer to the Father to be glorified. He prayed for his disciples and for all believers. And we're shifting this morning to John 18, and these are the events that transpire leading to his crucifixion. And uh, I want to start my time here by sharing a quote uh, from an author named J.B. Hilliard. This is from the book, The Last Keeper. I thought it was fitting, given our subject we're diving into here. Uh, this is J.B. Hilliard. The blade of betrayal, the sharpest of weapons, is wielded not by your enemies, but by your friends. And I wanted to start with this, because uh, we'll be looking at the betrayal of Jesus in the garden, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus Christ. And... Um, as it says here, the sharpest of weapons. I think this is, betrayal is one of the most painful experiences that one of us can face um, through life. And uh, I'm not gonna ask for a raise of hands here, but I would imagine there's a number of you that have probably faced betrayal in the midst of your own lives with somebody that's been very close to you. And it's because, as he says here, it's not done by people that you expect to be enemies, but it's people that you have given your trust to and uh, ultimately, they've taken advantage of that trust. So this morning, as we dive in, we're looking at John 18, 1 through 4, and we're going to answer three questions. First, how was Jesus betrayed? Second, how did Jesus respond to betrayal? And third, how do we respond to betrayal? How was Jesus betrayed? How did Jesus respond to betrayal? And how do we respond to betrayal? We're going to first answer, how was Jesus betrayed? So we're going to go into John 18, 1 through 3. 
Read along with me here. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. At the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed them, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So the first verse I want us to look at is highlighted. It's uh, verse 2 there. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. I think the first thing we see here, how Jesus was betrayed, is that Judas took advantage of Christ's vulnerabilities. Like the rest of the disciples, Judas shared life with Jesus. He was one of the 12 men handpicked by Jesus to be poured into. Much of their time together, we see throughout the Gospels, and we can assume that there were many, many more moments spent in each other's presence. They lived life together, and they knew the intimate details of one another. I can think of my own life, a group of guys that I spend almost every morning with. We get on a Zoom call at 5 a.m. We spend a half hour together just reviewing how our lives are, encouraging one another, and praying together before we start our day. And because of the sheer amount of time we've spent together, these guys know me inside and out. They can pick up on the slightest nonverbals if something isn't right, and I can do the same for them as well. And it's, it's ultimately the sheer amount of time that we spend together. We know each other so well. We've carried each other's vulnerability. So think about the travesty, right, of Judas, one of the 12 men closest to Jesus, using the intimate details of Christ's daily habits to easily guide his perpetrators directly to him. Here in the garden where the disciples came many times before, as it says, right? Probably to learn, rest, and pray together. But now Jesus would be arrested and hauled off on trial at the same very spot. We'll go on here. We're going to look at verse 3. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Judas led Roman soldiers, chief priests, and Pharisees. So we see several groups of people mentioned in the arrest of Jesus. We see the Roman soldiers alongside chief priests, Pharisees, and they were led by Judas, one of Jesus' very own disciples. These people all had very different experiences and backgrounds. Um, and essentially, they were not people that would normally hang out. All right? We see Jews and Gentiles here. But there's one common denominator. They were actively attempting to subjugate Jesus and limit his influence so they could hang on to their personal authority. Normal boundary lines between Jew and Gentile were briefly erased with one single mission to bring Jesus Christ down. And as we see these verses in hindsight, I think it's easy to say, how dare they? But we need to recognize that those who are not led by God's Holy Spirit live continually in a default state as an enemy of God. Paul writes about this in Romans 8. Those who live as their human nature tells them to have their minds controlled by what human nature wants. Those who live as the Spirit tells them to have their minds controlled by what the Spirit wants. To be controlled by human nature results in death, 
to be controlled by the Spirit results in life and peace. And so people become enemies of God when they are controlled by their human nature, for they do not obey God's law, and in fact, they cannot obey it. We'll go on here. Continuing in verse 3, they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So obviously we see these items that they're carrying as they come before Christ here. Torches, lanterns, and weapons. They're carrying torches and lanterns, which obviously means they were coming at nighttime. This is something that they were doing under the cover of darkness. This is something that they did not want others knowing about. Christ at this point was somebody who uh, was healing and um, uh, teaching and uh, just a beloved figure in the eyes of many people. And this is something they did not want other people seeing. They didn't want to be judged for. This is something they did without integrity. It was something that they did under the cover of night. Um, and then, obviously, they were carrying weapons, right? They were carrying weapons. So this is something that, obviously, you use to subjugate people. They approached Christ like he was a violent criminal, right? This is a man whose life was marked by serving, healing, teaching, always preaching God's kingdom, and they approached him like a violent criminal and... Um, Again, it was to maintain their personal authority. Um, yeah, their, per their approach to Jesus displayed a deep distrust in who he was and ultimately his mission, which was against theirs, to bring God's kingdom to earth. And I'm pers if I'm personally being honest, there have been many times in my own life where my approach to Jesus has looked similar to theirs. Though I've professed Jesus as my Lord and Savior for many years, there have been times where my actions and motives have not been consistent with that of a Christ follower. I haven't always submitted to Jesus' authority in every area of life. I would hold him at arm's length, not giving him full access because I didn't trust him to, be, to give me the peace he said he would. And many of you, last time I spoke, heard of my struggles with my drinking habits. And um, six years ago, I was convicted toward a journey of accountability in that area. And though I believed in Jesus, I held a clenched fist before that. When I would pr approach him, holding my drinking habits at a safe distance behind my back, because I was afraid that Jesus was going to take all my fun away in that area. I had a deep distrust that he wanted the best for me in that specific area, and it led to what I would call a micro-betrayal that I would practice in private day after day. The problem was that these seemingly insignificant acts of disobedience led to a mediocre existence, a buzz by night and a hangover by day, as well as a complete loss of sensitivity to a higher purpose in seeking God's will in my life and in the lives of my family and friends. I was quietly rendered ineffective in a pursuit of my own pleasure over seeking God's glory and the good of others. I share more than I'd like to admit with those who came to arrest Christ that night in the garden. So I want you to think on the likelihood of this reality in the context of your own lives. How do you approach Jesus? Some of you may find yourselves in a similar position to those who came for Jesus that night, skeptical of who he is without any interest of exploring the implications of a life fully surrendered to him. You may be very comfortable on the throne of your own life 
and would be willing to do almost anything to keep Christ from inconveniencing your personal truth. Like the Roman soldiers, you might be getting a, your first glimpse of Jesus, not really sure of who he is. Like the religious Jews, you might see him as one who opposes your current way of life and authority. Or like Judas, you might even profess Christ with your mouth and even be willing to kiss him publicly while betraying him when no one else is watching. I can only imagine Christ's emotions as he looked upon Judas, a man who he invited and invested in for years, taking a stand against him. And just like Judas, we can fool ourselves, we can know so much about Jesus without ever fully submitting our lives to him. So we're going to move on here. How did Jesus respond to betrayal? This will be verses 4 through 9. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. So here we're going to look at verses 4 through 6. It says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, and when he replied, I am he, everyone drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus already knew about the betrayal and was infinitely more powerful than his perpetrators. Jesus was not surprised by these events. He'd spent the last few chapters in John attempting to prepare his disciples for this very moment, even telling them in John 13, 21, that one of you is going to betray me. He was omniscient, holding all knowledge, and yet he asked his perpetrators who it was they wanted, to which they replied, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus' humble earthly description. And then he responded, I am. I am the two words linking him to his divinity. Throughout John, we see Jesus using the phrase, I am, every time he revealed about God's nature and loving heart toward mankind. And at the utterance of these two words, everyone drew back and fell to the ground. At this moment, I believe Christ demonstrated his ultimate sovereignty by giving everyone just a peek at his glory. The reality was no force on earth was going to take Jesus, God in flesh, against his will. He was willingly submitting himself out of an unwavering obedience to his heavenly father, the loving protection of his closest friends in the garden, and ultimately the selfless sacrifice of a broken world that was utterly helpless without him. Next, we'll look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. By request, Jesus alone was arrested and punished. Let these men go, he said. 
These men were the disciples who Jesus had journeyed with for three plus years, sharing moments of laughter, sorrow, and everything in between. They witnessed Christ's healing, serving, teaching, praying. They knew him, and they followed him like children following their parents. They had an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus would willingly be arrested and led away to crucifixion, but I believe in this moment, his concern was were for his closest friends, his 11 remaining disciples. He would receive the punishment. They would be protected. He would be put in chains. They would go free. He would ultimately die, and they would live. He requested to be punished alone. His request to be punished alone would reinforce what he prayed in John 17, 12. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you, God the Father, gave me. None has been lost except the one, Judas, doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus was acting upon the very command he taught these disciples in John 15, 12 through 13. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Love each other as I have loved you. There's no more compelling picture of love than one who is willing to put themselves in harm's way for the sake of another. Spirit-led sacrificial living is a sign of those who have become fully mature in Christ those who have been sanctified, those who have denied themselves, picked up their cross, and followed Christ. This command is impossible for us to follow in our own strength. All right, we'll go on here. All right, so the Kohlberg Moral Development Chart, actually my mother-in-law was the one who brought this up to me a few, I think it was a year or two ago. The reason I share this with you is I feel it's very helpful to see why we do what we do. So a lot of times people would say morality is kind of just doing the right things, right? In, in external action. This morality chart is the why behind what we do. I think, I, I forget the, who said this quote. Matt would probably know. They said sometimes, or I think it was G.K. Chesterton, but he said the, the worst sin is doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And I feel like this is a helpful chart because it gives us a, a view at the motive behind and the intent behind what we do, all right? We have three levels. We have pre-morality, we have conventional morality, and post-conventional morality. Two stages to each level. We're going to read through it here together. If I can get it right here. There we go. Level one, pre-morality. Punishment and obedience orientation. This is what, when we do what is right because of fear of punishment. Anyone who's been a parent knows that ultimately what, when our chi kids make the right decision, it's often because they're fearing uh, a timeout or something along those lines. All right? That's your first stage. Stage two is the hedonistic orientation. This is doing what is right for personal gain or perhaps a reward. This is why Christ said, when you give to the poor, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is when Christ said, ultimately, when you pray, you go behind a closed door, so it makes sure that nobody else is watching. There are a lot of people who act 
because they know other people are watching. They're doing it for a pat on the back. They're doing it for self-interest. Level two, conventional morality. This is when your, the extent of your morality is uh, ultimately stops at your nationality or the line of your country or the line of your culture. Interpersonal concordance orientation. Doing right is right according to the majority to be a good girl or boy. So ultimately, this is doing what is right in the context of the culture that we live in. Next, we have law and order orientation. Doing what is right because, because it is your duty and it helps society. This is being a good citizen, right? So ultimately, if this is good for America, I'm going to do it, or wherever you live, this is being a good citizen. Then we move into post-conventional morality. Social contract or legalistic orientation. This is doing what is right, even if it is against the law because the law is too restrictive. The, uh, the thing that piqued my interest uh, with my mother-in-law was she talked about Harriet Tubman. And ultimately, when slavery was a thing, she continually put herself in harm's way in order to save people on the Underground Railroad. This is because our law was not in alignment with God's law, essentially. And then we have stage six, universal ethical principle orientation. Doing what is right because of our inner conscience, which has absorbed the principles of justice, equality, and the sacredness of life. This chart is not pulled from the Bible, but I feel like this is a very helpful tool to kind of let us see, all right, why are we doing what we're doing here? What is the ultimate authority in our life? Pre-morality, you're the ultimate authority right? Uh, regular morality, it's your authority basically is where you live, the culture, the nationality that you're from. And then post-conventional extends beyond that. And I would argue stage six is when you're living by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when I'm not obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, my love for others, whether I like to admit it or not, is purely transactional. My actions are weighed in the self-serving equation of possible return on investment. Every move is determined based on the personal my personal recognition, my personal financial gain, my personal security, my personal ability to influence those around me. This mindset seeks to serve my lesser kingdom and personal will over the good, pleasing, and perfect will of my Heavenly Father. This way of thinking will inevitably lead to a breakdown in my personal integrity when no one else is watching, and the breakdown of my trust with those who are closest to me, my spouse, my coworkers, my church, my community, and the eventual breakdown of my sensitivity in my own relationship with God and my sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's promptings. All that to say we can't maintain godly living if our motives aren't animated by, the, by abiding in Christ as he mentions in John 15. He is the vine, and we are the branches. He is our source of power. When we do it on our own power, we are acting out of self-interest. The Apostle Paul defines the signs of the true spirit-led love in his letter to the Corinthians. So we're going to look at love. This is sacrificial, holy, spirit-led love as defined in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. I know many of you are familiar with this. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, 
It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Take a few moments and think on this list. This is very similar to what we see in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Consider your daily posture to those who know you better than anyone else. This could be your spouse. This could be your children. This could be your parents. This could be a coworker. Those who know you better than anyone else. Think over this last month. Do you have a perfect record when it comes to loving them? All right, now let's take it a step further. Drawing on Christ's command in Matthew 5, 43 through 44. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I feel that this, in our own strength, is impossible. This is something that has to come from our higher authority and spirit-led living we are, where we are filled from something other than ourselves. We'll follow that up with my favorite C.S. Lewis quote. Love, and this is sacrificial love, okay? This is not acting out of a return on investment. Love is never wasted, for its value does not rest upon reciprocity. So, given Christ's command in Matthew 5, given this quote, if this quote is true, how have you loved those that you wouldn't even consider a friend? Those who might act in a way or a lifestyle that would annoy you? How about those who would discount, neglect, or belittle you? What about those who have actively opposed you and spoken out against you? Or even those who have taken advantage of your vulnerability and betrayed you. That leads us to our next question. How do we respond to betrayal? I think Simon Peter shows us how often we respond to betrayal. We're going to look at uh, John 18, 10, and 11. I'll read it. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant's or I'm sorry, the high priest's servant cutting off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter both possessed and used the same weapon as those who came to arrest Jesus Christ. Upon first looking at these verses, we might be tempted to look upon Peter's actions as admirable. A man standing up for Jesus against all odds. Here stood Judas with the chief priests and the Pharisees, all backed by the full weight of the Roman government, ready to arrest Jesus Christ. This was Peter's last-ditch effort to protect the man he knew and loved. 
I can imagine him swinging with all of his strength in an emotional flourish, attempting to save the one man he had invested everything in for the last few years. I can imagine Peter thinking the same question that he asked Jesus in John 6. To whom shall we go if, this lead, if my leader were arrested, tried, and crucified? But upon further examination, there's a few problems with Peter's knee-jerk reaction. Though he stood with Jesus, his actions were literally no different than those who had come to arrest Jesus. His actions were ruthless and violent, intended to harm those who stood in his way. He was acting in his own limited strength, attempting to personally save the omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent God in flesh that stood beside him. If If Peter only remembered the very rebuke from Jesus in Matthew 16 when he predicted this very event. We'll read it together. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter was seeking a lesser kingdom than God's kingdom that night. He saw the arrest and death of Jesus as the potential end of Peter's own recognition, Peter's own power, Peter's own comfort, or Peter's own influence. He lashed out to save his precious benefits that came along with being one of Jesus' disciples. Further perpetuating the cycle of brokenness that Judas and his crew began that evening. So, just think for a second, and this is very true of me too. Everything I say here, I deeply have issues in my own personal life with. What human concerns do you share with Peter? Think with me. What keeps you up at night? Are you worried about your provision, your health, the current state of your family or work relationships? Maybe you're concerned about what's happening in a post-truth, post-church culture, and what this shift in cultural mindset might mean for your country, your legacy, and your family's legacy? Do you feel the moral stand that you've taken is lumping you in with a forgotten or ostracized minority? Do you have concerns that your recognition, influence, and protection are flitting away as time soldiers forward? Jesus has some advice for you. Put away your sword and seek first God's kingdom. Jesus has a command for his followers in Matthew 6, 31 through 34. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. 
each day has enough trouble of its own. Even Jesus, who knew that his arrest, trial, and crucifixion was in God's plan, fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, who is tempted in every way that you and I are, when confronted with his own agenda versus his heavenly father's, willingly submitted. This is what it means to be meek and humble. I was reading in Philippians 2 the other day, and it's just like, man, Jesus, who was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But taking human form became a servant, and as a servant was led to the cross to die for humanity. This is what it means to be meek and humble. This is infinite power under God the Father's will. Infinite power under God the Father's will. And that means the same for us. How do we follow Jesus' example of humility as we respond to his loving sacrifice? So if we see Christ, who is equal with God, humbling himself, to the point where he is sacrificially laying down his life for others. It stands to reason that God is not as interested in your strength as he is in your submission. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. There is nothing you bring to the table that is going to help him by yourself. He is inviting you in, and as you submit, it's a blessing to be able to come into what he's been able to do. We try to approach God in our own strength. He wants our submission. So let's finish the passage this morning by reading the last few verses. John 18, 12 through 14. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. It would be good if one man died for the people. One man willingly submitted himself. One man subjected to interrogation, beating, mockery, and a painful death on the cross. One man took all the guilt and shame you and I accrue over the course of our lifetimes and endured separation from a perfect union with his heavenly Father for the joy that was set before him. That joy was the vision of me and you, thousands of years later, sinless, clothed in his righteousness, and led by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that we might receive the grace of God the Father and share in Christ's glory. This is love. I want to leave us today with Christ's command to his disciples in John 15 one more time. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends.
Let's pray together. (sighs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning. And as we look at what it means, Lord, to be led by the power of your Spirit, Lord, we just want to first say we're sorry. We want to, Lord, just recognize where we've gotten it wrong. I personally want to say I'm sorry, Lord, for just when I don't fully believe the best that you have for me and I don't fully live in the power of your spirit. And Lord, the beauty of your sacrifice thousands of years ago is that ultimately it's not based on my performance. Though I get it wrong time and time again, Lord, I'm clothed in your righteousness and I thank you for that. Thank you, Lord that you saw fit to give me a gift that I didn't deserve. Lord, I just pray for everyone here that you would move by the power of your spirit to convict where they need to be convicted. And Lord, that we would just, again, live in a way that is consistent to what you call us to. To deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and follow you. And Lord, this ultimately is abundant life. But to believe it, to stop acting out of self-interest, but Lord, to act in a way that allows you to be the king of our lives. Lord, we just thank you for your love for us and the fact that, Lord, it is not based on our performance, but the perfect performance of Jesus on our behalf. And Lord, I just... I pray that you would make much of what was said here today. And Lord, I just pray that you would be glorified as we go forth today. Pray these things in your powerful name. Amen.